Hi guys, and welcome back to the podcast, Storytime with Jack. We have a cracker of a story for you today. It's The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. In some ways, it's considered the first detective novel. Certainly the prototype for the likes of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who we've had before on the show. The story is actually written in six parts, so in this episode I'm going to read two parts, then the next another two, and then the last one another two again. So there'll be three episodes, and they'll all be linked in the description below. So yeah, just a quick short intro, tuck yourselves in, get yourselves nice and cosy, and let me read you a detective story. Okay guys, this is The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Here we go. Part one. Paris. In Paris it was, in the summer of 1840. There, I first met that strange and interesting young fellow, Auguste Dupin. Dupin was the last member of a well-known family, a family which had once been rich and famous. He himself, however, was far from rich. He cared little about money. He had enough to buy the most necessary things of life and a few books. He did not trouble himself with the rest. Just books. With books, he was happy. We first met when we were both trying to find the same book. As it was a book which few had ever heard of, this chance brought us together in an old bookstore. Later we met again in the same store, then again in another bookstore. Soon we began to talk. I was deeply interested in the family history he told me. I was surprised, too, at how much and how widely he had read. More important, the force of his busy mind was like a bright light in my soul. I felt that the friendship of such a man would be for me riches without price. I therefore told him of my feelings toward him, and he agreed to come and live with me. He would have, I thought, the joy of using my many fine books, and I would have the pleasure of having someone with me, for I was not happy alone. We passed the days reading, writing and talking, but Dopin was a lover of the night, and at night, often with only the light of the stars to show us the way, we walked the streets of Paris, sometimes talking, sometimes quiet, always thinking. I soon noticed a special reasoning power he had, an unusual reasoning power. Using it gave him great pleasure. He told me once, with a soft and quiet laugh, that most men have windows over their hearts. Through these, he could see into their souls. Then he surprised me by telling me what he knew about my own soul, and I found that he knew things about me that I had thought only I could possibly know. His manner at these moments was cold and distant. His eyes looked empty and far away and his voice became high and nervous. At such times it seemed to me that I saw not just Dopin, but two Dopins, one who coldly put things together, and another who just as coldly took them apart. One night we were walking down one of Paris's long and dirty streets. Both of us were busy with our thoughts. Neither had spoken for perhaps fifteen minutes, it seemed as if we had each forgotten that the other was there, at his side. I soon learned that Dopin had not forgotten me, however. Suddenly he said, 
You are right. He's a very little fellow, that's true. And he would be more successful if he acted in lighter, less serious plays. Yes, there can be little doubt of that, I said. At first I saw nothing strange in this. Dupin had agreed with me, with my own thoughts. This, of course, seemed to me quite natural. For a few seconds I continued walking and thinking. But suddenly I realized that Dupin had agreed with something which was only a thought. I had not spoken a single word. I stopped walking and turned to my friend. Dupin, I said. Dupin, this is beyond my understanding. How could you know that I was thinking of... Here I stopped, in order to test him. To learn if he really did know my unspoken thoughts. How did I know you were thinking of Chantilly? Why do you stop? You were thinking that Chantilly is too small for the plays in which he acts. Well, that is indeed what I was thinking. But tell me in heaven's name the method, if method there is by which you have been able to see into my soul in this matter. It was the fruit seller. Fruit seller? I know no fruit seller. I mean the man who ran into you as we entered this street. It may have been ten or fifteen minutes ago, perhaps less. Yes, yes, that's true, I remember now. A fruit seller, carrying a large basket of apples on his head, almost threw me down. But I don't understand why the fruit seller would make me think of Chantilly, or if he did, how you can know that. I will explain. Listen closely now. Let us follow your thoughts, from the fruit seller to the play actor, Chantilly. These thoughts must have gone like this, from the fruit seller to the cobblestones, from the cobblestones to stereotomy, and from stereotomy to Epicurus to Orion, and then to Chantilly. As we turned into the street, the fruit seller, walking very quickly past us, ran against you and made you step on some cobblestones which had not been put down evenly, and I could see that the stones had hurt your foot. You spoke a few angry words to yourself and continued walking, but you kept looking down, down at the cobblestones in the street, so I knew you were still thinking of stones. Then we came to a small street, where they are putting down street stones which they have cut in a new and very special way. Here your face became brighter and I saw your lips move. I could not doubt that you were saying the word stereotomy, the name for this new way of cutting stones. It is a strange world, isn't it? But you will remember that we read about it in the newspaper only yesterday. I thought the word stereotomy would make you think of that old Greek writer named Epicurus, who wrote of something he called atoms. He believed that the world and everything in the heavens above are made of these atoms. Not long ago, you and I were talking about Epicurus and his ideas, his atoms, ideas which Epicurus wrote about more than 2,000 years ago. We were talking about how much those old dears are like today's ideas about the earth and the stars and the sky. I felt sure that you would look up to the sky. You did look up. Now I was certain that I had been following your thoughts, as they had in fact come into your mind. I too looked up and saw that the group of stars we call Orion is very bright and clear tonight. I knew you would notice this, and think about the name Orion. Now follow my thoughts carefully. Only yesterday, in the newspaper, there was an article about the actor Chantilly, an article which was not friendly to Chantilly, not friendly at all. We noticed that the writer of the article had used some words taken from a book we had both read, 
Those words were about Orion, so I knew you would put together the two ideas of Orion and Chantilly. I saw you smile, remembering that article and the hard words in it. Then I saw you stand straighter, as tall as you can make yourself. I was sure you were thinking of Chantilly's size, and especially his height. He is small. He is short. And so I spoke, saying that he is indeed a very little fellow, this Chantilly, and he would be more successful if he acted in lighter, less serious plays. I will not say that I was surprised. I was more than surprised. I was astonished. Dupin was right, as right as he could be. Those were, in fact, my thoughts, my unspoken thoughts, as my mind moved from one thought to the next. But if I was astonished by this, I would soon be more than astonished. One morning, this strangely interesting man showed me once again his unusual reasoning power. We heard that an old woman had been killed by unknown persons. The killer, or the killers, had cut her head off and escaped into the night. Who was this killer, this murderer? The police had no answer. They had looked everywhere and found nothing that helped them. They did not know what to do next, and so they did nothing. But not Dupin. He knew what to do. Part 2 It was in Paris in the summer of 1840 that I met Auguste Dupin. He was an unusually interesting man, with a busy, forceful mind. This mind could, it seemed, look right through a man's body, into his soul, and uncover his deepest thoughts. Sometimes he seemed to be not one, but two people. One who coldly put things together, and another who just as coldly took them apart. One morning in the heat of the summer, Dupin showed me once again his special reasoning power. We read in the newspaper about a terrible killing. An old woman and her daughter, living alone in an old house in the Rue Morgue, had been killed in the middle of the night. Paris, July, 1840. In the early morning today, the people in the western part of the city were awakened from their sleep by cries of terror, which came, it seemed, from a house in the street called the Rue Morgue. So goes the article. The only persons living in the house were an old woman, Mrs. Lespinay, and her daughter. Several neighbours and a policeman ran towards the house, but by the time they reached it, the cries had stopped. When no one answered their calls, they forced the door open. As they rushed in, they heard voices, two voices. They seemed to come from above. The group hurried from room to room, but they found nothing until they reached the fourth floor. There, they found a door that was firmly closed, locked, with the key inside. Quickly, they forced the door open, and they saw spread before them a bloody, sickening scene, a scene of horror. The room was in the wildest possible order. Broken chairs and tables were lying all around the room. There was only one bed, and from it everything had been taken and thrown into the middle of the floor. There was blood everywhere, on the floor, on the bed, on the walls. A sharp knife covered with blood was lying on the floor. In front of the fireplace, there was some long grey hair, also bloody. It seemed to have been pulled from a human head. On the floor were four pieces of gold, an earring, several objects made of silver, and two bags containing a large amount of money in gold. Clothes had been thrown around the room. A box was found under the bed covers. 
It was open and held only a few old letters and papers. There was no one there, or so it seemed. Above the fireplace they found the dead body of the daughter. It had been put up into the opening where the smoke escapes to the sky. The body was still warm. There was blood on the face, and on the neck there were dark, deep marks which seemed to have been made by strong fingers. These marks surely show how the daughter was killed. After hunting in every part of the house without finding anything more, the group went outside. Behind the building they found the body of the old woman. Her neck was almost cut through, and when they tried to lift her up, her head fell off. The next day, the newspaper offered to its readers these new facts. The murders in the Rue Morgue, Paris, July 8th, 1840. The police have talked with many people about the terrible killings in the old house on the Rue Morgue, but nothing has been learned to answer the question of who the killers were. Pauline Dobor, a washwoman, says she has known both of the dead women for more than three years and has washed their clothes during that period. The old lady and her daughter seemed to love each other dearly. They always paid each other well. She did not know where their money came from, she said. She never met anyone in the house. Only the two women lived on the fourth floor. Pierre Moreau, a shopkeeper, says Mrs. Lespinay had bought food at his shop for nearly four years. She owned the house and had lived in it for more than six years. People said they had money. He never saw anyone enter the door except the old lady and her daughter, and a doctor eight or ten times, perhaps. Many other persons, neighbours, said the same thing. Almost no one ever went into the house, and Mrs. Lespinay and her daughter were not often seen. Jules Mignot, a banker, says that Mrs. Lespinay had put money in his bank, beginning eight years before. Three days before her death, she took out of the bank a large sum of money, in gold. The man from the bank carried it for her to her house. Isidore Mouzet, a policeman, says that he was with the group that first entered the house. While he was going up the stairs, he heard two voices, one low and soft, one high, hard and very strange. The voice of someone who is certainly not French, the voice of a foreigner, Spanish perhaps. It was not a woman's voice, he could not understand what it said. But the low voice, the softer voice, said in French, My God! Alfonso Garcia, who is Spanish and lives on the Rue Morgue, says that he entered the house but did not go up the stairs. He is nervous and he was afraid that he might be ill. He heard the voices. He believes the high voice was not that of a Frenchman. Perhaps it was English, but he doesn't understand English, so he is not sure. William Byrd, another foreigner, an Englishman, says he was one of the persons who entered the house. He has lived in Paris for two years. He heard the voices. The low voice was that of a Frenchman. He was sure because he heard it say in French, My God! The high voice was very loud. He is sure that it was not the voice of an Englishman, nor the voice of a Frenchman. It seemed to be that of an Italian. It might have been a woman's voice. He does not understand Italian. Mr. Alberto Montani, an Italian, was passing the house at the time of the cries. He says that they lasted for about two minutes. There were screams, long and loud, terrible, fearful sounds. Montani, who speaks Spanish but not French, says that he also heard two voices. He thought both voices were French, but he could not understand any of the words spoken. The persons who first entered the house all agree that the door of the room where the daughter's body was found was locked on the inside. When they reached the door, everything was quiet. When they forced the door open, they saw no one. The windows were closed and firmly locked on the inside. There are no steps that someone could have gone down while they were going up. 
They say that the openings over the fireplace are too small for anyone to have escaped through them. It took four or five people to pull the daughter's body out of the opening over the fireplace. A careful search was made through the whole house. It was four or five minutes from the time they heard the voices to the moment they forced open the door of the room. Paul Dumas, a doctor, says that he was called to see the bodies soon after they were found. They were in a horrible condition, badly marked and broken. Such results could not have come from a woman's hands, only from those of a very powerful man. The daughter had been killed by strong hands around her neck. The police have learned nothing more than this. A killing as strange as this has never before happened in Paris. The police do not know where they will look for an answer. When we had finished reading the newspaper's account of the murders, neither Dupin nor myself said anything for a while, but I could see in his eyes that cold, empty look which told me his mind was working busily. When he asked me what I thought of this, I could only agree with all Paris. I told him I considered it a very difficult problem, a mystery to which it was not possible to find an answer. No, no, said Dupin. No, I think you are wrong. A mystery it is, yes, but there must be an answer. Let us go to the house and see what we can see. There must be an answer. There must. All right, that's the end of part one. We'll see you next week for another part. In the meantime, please like and subscribe if you haven't, and click the bell so you get notified about the next part of the murders in the Rue Morgue.